Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter AudioCast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume 13, issue number 47, which happens to correspond with the week of November 6, 2023. This week, we're going to look at a COVID-19 postmortem. We're going to look at picky eating as well as the recipe of the week. Okay, COVID-19 postmortem. As you all know, after reading countless articles that I've posted about COVID and the policies that were put in place by, quote, well-meaning, end quote, bureaucrats, I've been highly critical of the events that took place and the United States government's failures on so many fronts. There are two seminal articles that have been written on these topics to date. One is an article called COVID-19 Origins, Investigating a Complex and Grave Situation Inside a Wuhan Lab. Two, the article COVID Lockdowns Were a Giant Experiment. It was a failure, a key lesson of the pandemic. And then I'm going to add actually a third an equally critical article that remains unpublished is a story of the standard American diet and its direct connection to the death from COVID. Where you lived in the country dictated in many ways your mental health, your school access, and general well-being. That is a story of a federalist system that looks to the states as incubators of innovation and understanding of policy. In this COVID postmortem, blue states, and especially the Democratic-dominated large cities, suffered from poor public policy decisions and the influence of teachers' unions not seeing the greater picture as it related to children, something that I care deeply about. School systems abandoned their primary responsibility, the child and their entire well-being. For me, that meant that children who had limited resources should have, been, should have but did not receive school-based education, safe environments to learn from, and nutrition for their body and mind. That responsibility was completely abandoned by all states for two months, for too many for part of the fall of 2020, and a select group who really broke out and maintained lockdowns for almost 18 months. What happened as a consequence? Thousands upon thousands of children were lost to the school system and its safety net. According to the Nocera article, That number was north of 230,000 lost kids in the 21 states looked at. I shudder to think of the ramifications of these decisions in 10 years. Lost education is a direct pathway to mental health and poverty cycle struggles, which invariably tip children to behaviors that are not good for society or themselves or their family. We are very aware that these 230,000 kids were not from well-to-do homes. Those kids went to or switched to private schools, switched states, had proper online ability, and generally thrived, save for mental health struggles of the lockdown isolation. Thus, yet again, we see the rich get richer, my children included, and the kids in poverty suffer. This is not okay. The COVID-19 pandemic playbook has to be the blueprint on how not to handle an infectious disease outbreak from the eyes of child welfare. My ideas for the next infectious concern. One, do not close schools, period. Unless it is crystal clear from the science, not public policy, but from science, that doing so will prevent the spread and save many, many lives, especially when those lives are young. This was the initial lockdown story, which made sense for the first one to two months. After that, it was clear that this was not a great decision. We should have reversed course and moved on rapidly. 
Number two, the NIH and the CDC, the National Institutes of Health and the Center for Disease Control, should immediately study masking effectiveness of various pathogens in current circulation have a baseline understanding for any future event. Masking children will never work well under the age of eight, as many studies have now shown. Maybe even up to 10 years old, I don't think they work very well. Stop the madness of thinking that it is possible to keep a child masked effectively for any length of time. Adults mostly cannot do it properly, and frankly, yet again, with Omicron, now, I don't think masks do much of anything. I think most studies are bearing that out. Three, supply chain issues for preventative equipment and pandemic preparedness concerns should be a national priority now, not when the next issue presents itself. These things need to be made in-country and available in-country. Four, the CDC should be open and transparent about all therapies for any given illness. Study what is potentially possible to aid the fight and refrain from calling long-used medicines like ivermectin horse medicine when it is clearly used in humans for many reasons. Whether it works or not is what should be studied, not anything else. In this pandemic, it clearly didn't seem to have a huge effect, but we didn't know that in the beginning when they started calling it horse medicine and demonizing those who spoke against that reality. For me, we need to be studying these things. We need to be asking the questions and not out of hand casting negative just aspersions or anything against people who are looking for other alternatives to help somebody mitigate disease risk. Five, the CDC should report death and morbidity rates based on any demographic that would help an individual make an informed decision regarding their personal health. For example, reporting that most deaths were occurring in people with the four diseases that notoriously kill humans, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease, should have been front page news everywhere with a side of guiding principles of health to help folks protect themselves from death. It just seems logical and obvious. The lab leak theory is Catherine E. Band's masterwork. I highly encourage everyone to read and or reread this article. It's quite incredible, the stories that were told to us and the censorship that followed this topic. Seeing that now with some of the stuff that came out with Twitter. It was just unbelievable for a democratic modern society. I remember sitting at a restaurant bar in Isla Mujeres, Mexico, in April of 2021, debating the SARS-2 origins with a few family members and some random barflies. The debate was lively, as one could imagine. I was clearly believing that it made Occam's razor-type sense that the virus leaked from a BSL-4 lab one mile from the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan, China, as opposed to a bat cave 700-plus miles away where a similar but not same virus was found years before. And, oh, by the way, the U.S. government was indirectly funding the UNC, Chapel Hill, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology's work on gain-of-function mutations that were the exact mutations that happened to be made making the ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2 so infectious and devastating to a naive human species. And, oh, by the way, we never did find an animal that could have been infected with that original bat from 700 miles away. That would make any of this sense. And it goes on and on and on. I highly encourage everyone to read the Eben paper. There's just so much stuff in it. You know, she, she wrote in there that in March of 2018, Dr. Xi partnered with Dr. Barrick and a longtime collaborator, Peter Danzik, Peter Dasik, D-A-S-Z-A-K, on 
a $14 million grant proposal to genetically manipulate bat coronavirus to see how they might cause pandemics. The proposal called for possibly enhancing the viruses with something called a furin cleavage site to boost their entry into human cells. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, rejected the grant proposal for not adequately assessing the risks posed by a supercharged virus. It is not clear whether the Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists continued their research on their own. Sheehan Barrick did not offer comment. In his response to our request for comment, Dasik did not address the DARPA grant. He said that he had not reviewed the Senate report and instead pointed to another report, which he recently co-authored in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences that strongly indicates a natural origin of SARS-CoV-2, end quote, from Catherine Eben's article in Vanity Fair. For me, the crazy thing is that Peter Daszak was the guy who led the initial group a year later to go into China and assess the origin of the outbreak. Can you say conflict of interest? I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's so weird to look back now, almost three years later, and see the reality that was the debacle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank God SARS-2 has mutated itself naturally into a very, very mild illness. Those at risk now appear to be only those with metabolic damage from years of processed food abuse, toxin exposure, and other things that cause lifestyle-based diseases of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that I people call you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity. Those with significantly advanced cardiovascular disease and diabetes and obesity were at higher risk. That is unknown. Next week, I'm going to take a little deeper dive into the reality of the final postmortem of COVID-19 related to food specifically. You all are very aware of my critical stance on Dr. Anthony Fauci. From the Nocera article, which was a New York intelligencer, they write appropriately, quote, one such person was Anthony Fauci. In August of 2022, Fauci announced that he planned to retire at the end of the year. Over the next few months, he made the rounds to discuss how the country had fared during the pandemic. Invariably, he asked, he was asked whether he regretted his forceful advocacy of lockdowns, especially given its effect on children. At one form, he said, quote, sometimes when you have do draconian things, it has collateral negative consequences on the economy, on the school children, end quote. But he added, quote, the only way to stop something cold in its tracks is to try and shut things down, end quote. What he could never acknowledge was that, quote, shutting things down, end quote, didn't stop the virus and that keeping schools closed didn't save lives of children, for sure, and probably didn't do much for adults either. Then again, to understand that, you would have been willing, you would have to be willing to follow the science. The last statement is emblematic of the entire Fauci debacle. For a career scientist, he abandoned in his final years on the job, whether it was the lockdown masking social distancing, ivermectin, his exposure to the entire uh, gain-of-function mutation research, and so much more. It is so frustrating for someone who believes that science is the only non-biased arbiter of truth. To see it so blindly pushed aside for political purposes is so sad. But then, again, we still feed our ch children scientifically proven metabolically damaging food in school daily. Oh well, there is hope. We can still try and love our kids, feed them, and care for them at home where policies cannot interfere because we have a layer of control. Your home is your castle. Section 2. Picky eating frequency has been on a worsening trajectory over the past decades in our children. It appears to coincide with the, quote, friend type, end quote, parenting style in neurotypical children and a selective rejection in children with neurobehavioral diversity concerns. 
In the journal Pediatrics, the authors of a study examined the link between picky or selective eating behaviors in two to five-year-old children and recurrent psychiatric symptoms, as well as risk factors for later psychiatric issues. The study group is comprised of 917 primary care-based 24 to 71-month-old children. Quote, both moderate and severe levels of selective eating were associated with psychopathological symptoms, anxiety, depression, ADHD, both concurrently and prospectively. However, the severity of the psychopathological symptoms worsened as selective eating became more severe. Impairment in family functioning was reported at both levels of selective eating, as well as sensory sensitivity in domains outside of food and the experience of food aversion, end quote. This comes to us from Zucker et al., 2015, and that is in the journal Pediatrics again. So what this study proves is association and not causation. In many cases, we do not know whether pink picky eating is a byproduct of this functional brain or a behavior that is the cause or just an exacerbate of neurologic disease? I tend to think that the answer is both. Children that display abnormal eating desires at these young ages are giving us clues that they have sensory and perhaps neurologic issues that require our attention. Waiting for these issues to fade away naturally is not in your child's best interest. From Taylor et al., we see Quote, during the first year of life, feeding difficulties and late introduction of lumpy food greater than nine months were associated with an increased likelihood of the child being a picky eater at 38 months. In the second year, the strongest predictor was a child being choosy at 15 months old. Provision of fresh fruit and eating the same meal as a child were protective against later picky eating, while providing ready prepared food predicted later picky eating. Taylor et al. 2018. And that comes to us from the journal... PNS. So, picky eating is a restrictive eating type that is very troublesome and complex world of American ultra-processed food. What defines a picky eater? A restriction of or avoidance of previously consumed food types and or new foods. Moderately picky eaters will only eat in their preferred range of foods, while severe children have a restricted diet of only a few foods. There is a spectrum of this reality that leads to graded insufficiencies. Why does it matter? Picky eaters are notoriously undernourished, not calorically, but with minerals, vitamins, and gut-beneficial foods. Linear height and weight are generally preserved. Weight is often excessive. Restrictive diets are generally devoid of fiber. Micronutrients that are naturally synergistic and polyphenols that provide antioxidant and cellular support. Any form of reduced intake is a direct cause of poor or weakened neurological function, leading to disorders of behavior and learning, as has been pointed out by many researchers and providers, including Bonnie Kaplan, Chris Palmer, Rhonda Patrick, and Sandy Newmark. Let us use the avoidance of fish as an example. To not consume fish at all leads to reduced levels of natural preformed omega-3 fatty acids. You then lack of benefit that they provide to our cells if you are not good at converting the consumed plant-based fats to docohexenoic acid or eicosapentaenoic acid. And this comes to us in those who may have a fatty acid dehydrogenase enzyme defect called FADS2. Or you don't eat vegetables, which is common in our practice. The lack of vegetables with untoward effects of limited fiber and reduce cofactor micronutrients that power all cellular functions, especially mitochondrial. 
The other big piece is that their placement foods or those actually consumed are driving metabolic issues throughout the brain. Fructose and volume is the major player, in my mind, now in mitochondrial damage. Fructose, especially as a beverage, will kick on the production of uric acid in the cell, leading to inflammasome activation and inflammation in the neuronal pathways. It's really a brain on fire. What to do? First, assess whether it is purely normal, stubborn behavioral avoidance by letting them get hungry. This is common between two and four years of age, especially if they are exposed to highly processed foods. Offer water and healthy food for a few meals and snacks in a row over the course of the day. If they refuse to eat at all over eight plus hours, you have a serious problem. Do not try this if your child has a known metabolic dysfunction like diabetes, or at least ask your provider what the safety possibilities are. These selective eating children require immediate attention by a physician and referral to an occupational or speech therapist versed in selective eating world. Also look for neurodiversity, like autism spectrum disorders here. If they eat after hours of holding out, you likely have a child that is stubborn and will require a more solid parenting routine grounded in offering good food without any coercion or coaxing. They eat what the family eats or go hungry till the next meal. No short order cooks in your house and no snacking. Also be careful of liquid calories like milk. I once cared for a child who consumed north of 50 ounces of milk a day, leading to iron sequestration and severe anemia. Let them cry and whine and tell them that you love them too much to give them junk food, too much milk, or only white carbohydrate foods. Although children that are still picky eaters in their second decade of life can be a mess, it is never too late to try to change what's happening in their microenvironment regarding these behaviors. Help them learn to eat healthy foods. Always model the proper eating style and blend of whole foods to your children. They can eat a salad before the main meal every time. Trust me, it does work. I would encourage you to read the Taylor PNS article. It is really worth a deeper dive if you want to learn more about picky eating or have a child that is a picky eater. All kids are love are to be loved whether they're picky eaters or not, and we want to help them along the path to what works the best for the body to function as good as it can. Recipe of the week, roast lamb French style. Or there's another one in there, recipe of the week, lamb Irish style. And there are two links to these recipes in the newsletter. I highly, highly encourage you to try them. They're awesome. Song of the week is Water Fountain by David Foster. A great song. Encourage you to listen to that as well. Free thoughts, we should always look to the past for clues to the future, but never rest solely there as growth comes from looking ahead. All right, everybody, have a great day and hug those kids. The disclaimer, the information provided in this podcasted newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.